Happy New Year, Software Defined Talk listeners. I hope everyone had a safe and happy new year and did lots of fun stuff with friends and family. It's Brandon here, and this week there wasn't a lot of tech news, so I wanted to play for you an interview I did with Jake Moylanen about his journey from employee to become an entrepreneur, and then ultimately he is now a venture capitalist. So it kind of tells the story of how he started a couple companies and what that was like and then what it's like to become a venture capitalist. So it's a fun discussion even tells some stories about like booting up linux for the first time on like a supercomputer and mainframes and what that's all about so, so some interesting nuggets in there for you to listen to so i hope you enjoy this interview and don't worry we'll be back next week to to cover the latest tech news i'm sure lots of exciting things have happened and uh we're really looking forward to another great year of software defined talk so without further ado here's the interview All right, Jake. So uh, I had you fly all the way back from South America just for this podcast. So you've gone officially from summer, right? Was it summer? It was summer. I, I would, and then now it is winter. Uh, what is it like to, to reengage with North America after being away for so long? I had no idea how much I miss North American travel and just stuffing on time is just such a luxury. You, just, you don't realize that when you're just you're trying to catch a flight. I think we had uh, my wife and I went down to, to Argentina and then Uruguay. And we had eight flights in the kind of domestic in that area. And I think six of them were, were late or delayed to, of, of some sort. So just basic things like and actually being able to go to a, a line, actually get, get food quickly is, is such a luxury now. I, don't, I had no idea. I had no idea. So what, what, what happened? Like you got there? Is it, just, is it just not run on time? Like you get to the airport? It doesn't run and- on time. And like we got, like we're landed in Uruguay at uh, – it was four and a half hours late. And so there's no taxis. So we have to take a bus, and the bus ends up breaking down. So my wife's 23 weeks pregnant, and oh, uh, wow. is, we're on the side of the road in Uruguay, and, uh, and we're, we're broken down on a bus. And I'm like, okay, how the heck are we going to get to our hotel? And so it's like that type of thing. Uh, is just very, very common. That, something like that has happened <laughs> no Uber, twice. Yeah. No Lyft? There's no uh, Uber, there's no Lyft. Well, there, there was some Uber, but it's impossible getting anyone to actually come out, which is just, <laughs> it's, it's impossible. So what, what is it, Uruguay? What did you do? Like, where did you visit? I don't well, know anything about it. That's... Well, so the whole reason you go there is for beaches. Like, and actually have, you know, beautiful beaches. Okay. And, uh, and that was the whole, whole goal. And just kind of relax at the end of the trip. Where, uh, and it, that was, and it was nice. It wasn't anything spectacular. Kind of, Caribbean beaches are actually nicer, I think. Uh-huh. So you flew all the way there. The flew beach, there. You, it was harder travel, and the beaches were just okay. Was there something? Was there something great well, out? Did something stood yeah, out? Yeah. Well, when we went to Patagonia, which is amazing, so we went to uh, like the end of the world. So it's like the very, very tip, furthest south you can get, and before you get to Antarctica, uh-huh. and that was absolutely gorgeous. And uh, we did some hiking there. She's again twenty three weeks pregnant at the time, and we did a seven and a half mile hike. And it was, wow. uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was brutal, but she, she trooped, you know, soldiered through and, and it was, uh, it was good though. Okay. So it was, it, I mean, I think of the end of the, of, uh, the southern, I mean, it seemed like it would be cold, but is it, is it, it not cold? Is it was it cold. It was, okay. it's, you know, it, it was cold. It wasn't as bad as you'd think, but going from cold to, to the beaches, like, you know, in the same day, it was, uh, it's always, always fun. <laughs> like, like California skiing exactly. on the beach. All right. Well, welcome back. I'm glad you survived it. Sound like a fantastic trip. And really, your wife deserves most of the credit here. I think of uh, 23. Wow, that's that's a pretty that's pretty adventurous for uh, she, yeah. for a 
a woman expecting. So I don't know. I don't, my wife and I wouldn't do anything nearly as She's brave. Yeah, she's a trooper. Okay. All right. Well, listen, the reason I want to have you on is uh, you've had like a really interesting career. I think you've, you've sort of uh, done it all. I think you've kind of worked at big companies, started your own companies, and then most recently you're going to get into the venture capital game. So I thought it would be interesting to kind of like, you know, talk a little bit about your career and how you got there. So we'll kind of start at the beginning, and I think we'll pick up at uh, – you know, you ended up working at IBM, where I've spent some time as well, and I think some of the people have been on the show before. But you actually worked in like a, a fairly like interesting technical area. So why don't we start with how did you get to IBM, and why don't you describe like some of the projects um, that you worked on when you first joined there? Yeah, sure. So when I started IBM, I, uh, I was coming straight out of school, and I was one of the few college grads that actually had some low-level kernel experience, just because I had an internship that happened to land uh, when I was at at uh, University of Michigan. And, uh, and so I, I, so they, I got this job and it was right, right after the dot-com bus. So I knew I needed to go someplace big because everything was imploding. <laughs> right. And so I'm like, okay, I can ride this out in IBM for a few years. And I ended up staying for seven, but mm-hmm. it, it was, uh, it was a good experience. Kind of cut my teeth on, uh, on, uh, on, on, get my tech chops, uh, through that. And, uh, what, what I did though, I did, uh, platform bring up for, so whenever IBM had a new mainframe, so those big million dollar type refrigerator boxes, uh, I was one that kind of got that thing to work for the first time. And so that required me kind of doing a bunch of bit flipping on, on the Linux kernel to kind of getting it to, to more or less to even work. And actually, just to start off, just to get the thing to start off is actually a feat in itself. Once it's going, it's pretty easy. But it just to, to start it is, is, is difficult. So, so how does it work? Like, I mean, because I think this is an interesting part. Like most people work at a higher level. Most of my career has been applications. So. So the hardware, you know, is quote finished or it's getting finished, right? And obviously, it's it's and it's coming to you. And so obviously, or we would hope, right? The hardware engineers have a sense of like the software is going to run on this. There's going to be an operating system, but it sounds like actually just getting it booted up for the first time oh, it, is, is is it's like like to me it feels like it, it like hasn't someone tried this before? Like it gets to you, but it seems like you know you're like you're just like looking at this thing. Like, how do I even get it, get it to work? Like what, what is that like? Like how did, like, why is it not more formalized? Is it sort of like the software and hardware guys don't talk much? Like what's oh, going on there? There's, I mean, there's some, you know, obviously there's some deep, deep specs involved, but when you have, you have uh, a new generation of, of say the power PC processor, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, there's a lot of different things that have changed and, uh, and usually you're the first, first person actually trying to get it. You know, it's one thing to have it, everything coded to the spec, another thing for it to actually all line up and actually work correctly, <laughs> especially you combine that with, uh, somewhere around 800,000 lines of firmware code, it can get pretty hairy pretty quickly. And so just, uh, be able to kind of span the gap between, uh, kernel. I, I just I had to do firmware and also know the basics of kind of hardware to kind of get the thing working. It was, uh, it was definitely a process. And in, the problem was even in the early, early stage type hardware, each one is its own work of art because there's only like maybe 10 made and, and they all have some type of problem with them. So there, there's uh, all kinds of hardware guys are soldering on wires here and there trying to get the thing just to, to start. And so you have to, uh, you also are you know, these freezing cold labs because you don't always worry about the, about the thing overheating. So you're just, you're, you're bundled up in a, in a, you know, in a parka and uh, trying to, trying to code and your hands are freezing and you, you, you sometimes you're there for, for like, uh, for usually like 18 to 20 hour days and just start wrapping. So I remember just wrapping where I'd, uh, I'd work to 10 o'clock one night. Uh, I'd, you know, and then I come back at, at early in the morning, then the next night I work to midnight. Uh, and then just, you keep going until at some point you, you, you're, you're working until 8am and, uh, you just, and, uh, it's just this continuous process over and over again. 
And uh, so, but it was so it was brutal when it's going on. But it's like six months. Six months you're working on it. Six months you kind of are, are kind of off. So it's a uh, it, it, it goes it ebbs and flows. <laughs> it sounds like being like deployed. It like is wartime. Yeah. It's like wartime. So what? Like, how do you know you're successful? Is it is it as simple as like you boot it up to a command line and you yeah, can start if you running get a command a command prompt and you can send an email. That was like the that, <laughs> that was so, the test case. That was the test case. That was so if you got to a command line, you send an email that you always sent. You know, send it to your director. Uh, that we, you know, this is this email was sent from. You know the power seven, you know the processor, and you know, and uh, and that that was that was literally the, the test case. So that's why you get it running, and then it becomes repeatable, and then it, it after gets, that like, it gets embedded in the system, and off it goes. Yeah, once you kind of get the first one or two up, it's pretty much rinse and repeat after that. But the first two are always it, it takes it, it can take six to eight months just to get that thing to boot for the first time. Wow, I had no idea. I, yeah. you know, I have no idea that it, it took this long. It seems, I don't, it sounds like, you know, a, you know, we've talked to a bunch of people on the show, like, do specialized things. This seems about as specialized as, I mean, like, how big was the team? Like, it was there, like, there was, uh, we had a, an extended team, but I'd say, uh, there was probably about six or seven of us at any given point that were working on it, and we each would have some, uh, there's some, some generation of, um, or some, some variation of it, and, uh, it, it, and the first one, the first generation, um, uh, first person with the first generation and the first model was always the toughest because you kind of, there's just some basic stuff that you had to get right. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So you did this and did you work on this? Is this what you did for seven years at IBM? Basically I did doing- it for about five of those seven years. Yeah. Okay. And then, and then from there we kind of took all those different mainframes and kind of combined them together to start doing, doing supercomputers. And so then I started doing the same thing, but doing it on supercomputers. And so trying to now you're trying to get not just one system to work, but sometimes 2,200 systems to work together, and that's a whole another level of you know of, of difficulty. What you know sometimes you know you might have a problem that uh, that only hits one out of hundred times when you're booting a computer, but when you're booting 2,200 computers at one time, well you're gonna have a lot that fail. You have to go yeah. go figure out the so it's it's like seeing you know it's a good good way of testing it and seeing how good of a job you did to bring up when you start doing it at scale like that. Wow, wow. Okay, so you're doing this and then. Um, so I'm just gonna characterize you're at like a fairly low level of computing here, right? You're I'm, not, I'm bit flipping. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. You're not like not a lot of people at happy hour are working on the same problems. As no, you. not usually. So, so you're doing this, but at the same time, um, I know, you know, you're, you've obviously thinking about other, you know, other ideas like startups and, you know, and things like that. So like, how did you kind of, because it, it isn't necessarily a natural jump to be doing like kind of this bring up work to like, I want to go build some different software applications. So, like, what was your mindset? Were you just sort of like looking at different ideas, like exploring other technologies? How, how, how in your spare time did you decide that like maybe you want to branch out of just you know kind of the, the bring up mode computer work? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur of some sort at some point in my life, and uh, and so I at, I was I remember I got sent over to Red Hat to go work for uh, for a week to go fix one of the problems, and I I think I fi- I fixed the server they're running within 15 minutes of being there, literally 15. So Monday morning. I got in like at 9 a.m. I think by 9:15 I had it fixed. I asked, "Can I come home now?" And they said, "No, you got to stay there just in case something goes wrong." But this is back in the day, and so there, we actually couldn't get into any of my any of my uh, my work at IBM because of the firewalls. And uh, so I pretty much sat around doing nothing for a week, and I'm like, "Okay, what am I going to go do?" And I that, that time I, I I did spend time to go create the genetic library, which is using uh, genetic algorithm go to to tune the the Linux kernel, which was kind of I got you know got a little bit of press for, it, which was kind of cool. But at the same time, I said that I wanted to actually, I, I thought it was time to actually go make the jump. Uh, I went back to business school. I want to go back to business school. I'm going to go start my own company. And, uh, and it was just, it was literally just a bunch of soul searching, sitting around for a week because I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Raleigh, you know, and, uh, and, and it's like a Raleigh retreat. It was exactly what it was. And, <laughs> 
And uh, so I, 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 I came back and I started applying to business schools right after that and uh, got into UT and then uh, went, to, went, went there, for, did the evening program for a few years. And then, uh, and then as soon as I got in with that, I promptly left IBM and, and went off to uh, Silicon Valley to kind of learn the ropes of, uh, of the startup world. So you really went back, like you specifically went in and was like, I'm going to use this MBA exactly. to, to acquire any skills I, I need to run businesses. And then as soon as I'm done, I'm, I'm going to go do that. It wasn't like... I'm going to get into finance or something else. So no, I, like- I, I knew, I, I know these need to know the basics of business and I knew nothing at all going into it. So okay. it was, it was a complete, you know, complete submersion. So you and, did like the, is, what the, is it the Tempa program here? T- yeah, China? Tempa, like, yeah. Which I think is like Texas evening MBA. MBA exactly. So like you just, I think that just means you go to school at night, right? I mean, is there anything? Pretty much, yeah. So you can work essentially during the day and go to school at night, right? So, well, what's that? I mean, I guess, the, you know, some people that get MBAs, like, Kind of, it's like a mixed results on the degree. Some people love it and think it was a great experience. Some people think it was sort of not necessary. What, what's your take on? on I mean, the NBA experience? since I knew nothing at all, it was it was invaluable for me. If I if I didn't do it, I think I'd have been hard pressed to really go do a startup well. Okay. And uh, I, I, so I, I I mean I highly recommend if anyone if you if you're already in the business world, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go back to to get your MBA unless you're trying to get just get the piece of paper. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're a tech like if person, you're in a lab booting up computers all day. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't for some reason I don't get a, you know a whole lot of exposure to marketing there. It's, yeah, uh, it's, I can see. Yes. All right. So it sounds like it was a good experience. So you get the MBA. And then you said you go to California. So what you, what job did you get in California? So I was working at this company called Schooner, which we did uh, we did high performance memcache and MySQL appliances. And again, I was still doing a bunch of low level work, trying to get the thing to uh, these appliances to run really really fast. Mostly mostly kernel work um, and some some actual application work. Uh, and I kind of we raised thirty five million in funding, and we were burning about a million dollars a month, and, and our revenue was not ramping up. And once they converted me over to sales, I knew we were in trouble. And so I decided, okay, this is not down. a good sign. So I'm like, I need to come with plan B here. And, uh, and so I started a company on the side called Crowdignite. And that was actually, uh, it was actually just kind of scratch the itch that I had from uh, something else I was already currently doing, which was I had these, uh, I had these two websites that I kind of had that were, one was kind of like a Star Wars fanboy site. And uh, you know, I'm like a level 17 geek here. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and, and, and another one was like a, like a, like a lifestyle site. And I was trying to like, like just kind of trade traffic between those two. And so I kind of created this, this technology that kind of more or less allowed me to go trade traffic really, really well between the two. Uh, using some machine learning and and, uh, uh, and 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 I wouldn't call it big data back then, but it was like the, the kind of the the early stages of, of kind of big data type of thoughts, and uh, and that just worked really really well. And I uh, between the two sites, and then I started having people ask me, if, would I you know could I use that technology as well? And so it just kind of snowballed from there, and just what happened that took off right at the same time that they were laying off everyone at my startup. And so it was really, you know, it wasn't, it was kind of just fortunate timing. It wasn't anything super planned. Uh, and I just, I built that up and I, I never actually hired any employees. I had just all contractors that were working for me. And, uh, and so I, I built that up and uh, I got an offer from, uh, I, I was trying to do a business deal with, with a major media company called Evolve Media. And uh, the corp dev guy reached out to me and he said, hey, you know, would you be interested in actually just selling? And, uh, and you're and, like, yeah, uh, were you yeah. Like, were you like, like immediately yes, or were you like? I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, <laughs> well, I you know I tried to play playing it cool, which was you know not always easy. But uh, I we uh, we talked about it, and it and the deal fell apart initially, and then it came back together, and uh, and just so happened that you know I was able to sell, and and uh, and at that point I had 100 percent of my equity still because I, I I never took any investors, I bootstrapped the thing, I 
And uh, this is like the home run. This is what know, people it, dream of, right? I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it sold literally from the, the point where I started to eight months later. I, we, we had a we had a, a wow. You sale. should tell the story because now everyone's just like, "This is the dream that never happens." It, <laughs> it, happened it was. To you. It, ha- it got, got lucky. Well, I'll tell you that the one thing that really helped me on that was I I really was reaching out and doing a bunch of like business development. I was constantly trying to. I probably spent half my time actually coding and, and getting the the thing working like the product but working better. But I. I also, uh, as also spending at least half my time just reaching out, trying to do business deals. And I, I, I always, I think that was one of the things I got lucky from a, from a business school perspective is I kind of learned, you know, that that was actually required before that. I always had the mentality, oh, you just build it and they will come, which yeah. never happens. But it's like, you got to build it and then go beat people over the head. With exactly. It, right? and, to, to see. and thankfully it was a good product and it was, it was actually hit the, the so what did it, you mentioned that like, it's like a traffic exchange. Like how does it work? Yeah. Like, what so did it's it actually, it's actually pretty simple. So if you ever go to the bottom of an article and it says from around the web, Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd show a bunch of uh, we'd provide that widget from around the web, and oh, we okay. and we'd provide a bunch of links that are relevant to what you're looking at. And these links may or may not be on your site. Typically, uh, for us, we always took them off site uh, to another another site that was trying to trade traffic as well. And uh, we we happened to send it. In, in, I'll get this more in the weeds, but uh, we sent it to what we call a jump page, so a page that shows kind of the preview of the of the page you're looking at plus. Like a hundred other links that are also kind of cool that someone would would you know be clickbaity that someone mm-hmm. wants to go click on. Right. And so we were able to not only you know generate that initial click that the person wants to go click through the final article, but they also clicked on two or three other links as well. So we were able to go generate more traffic than we took in. Got it. And so we did that. You know, we, we were able to um, pretty much boost any website that was using us. We were both were able to boost their their actual overall traffic by ten percent. And we were talking to like uh, a TMZ or you know Warner Brothers. Ten percent, uh, you know, more traffic is is a big deal, and so it was, the product really kind of sold itself for a long time. So we were able to ramp that up. We got to about eight billion impressions with a B, wow. Uh, wow. Rel- relatively quickly, and uh, and so we um, so that was that was great. But then my my two uh, so the main guy that did the corp dad that kind of uh, the one that did the the MMA deal to, to acquire the first company, um, him and one of my other business development leads from that company joined forces to go start a, another company called Kixer. And that's kind of, uh, we kind of, uh, saw something very, very similar. We, we, we thought that something we could do something conceptually similar, but do it almost like lead generation for apps. So if you okay. had a, an app out there, like the candy crushes of the world, we, we could get more installs of that app. And, uh, by doing, instead of clicking off to uh, a website, you click off to the app store. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's kind of, we, we were, I think my, my, business partner Omar uh, and I were just sitting around one day just talking about it and I said why don't we you know we could do the same basic idea as product night but just do it to apps and he's like yeah that's a great idea why don't you say why don't you photoshop mock up something I'll send it to my buddy at TMZ and so I went you know I went and did a little photoshop mock-up event and sent to his buddy he sent his buddy at TMZ and we already had a relationship from product night and the guy at TMZ said yeah we'd, we'd run that so from idea to 20 minutes later we had TMZ on board uh, which is again people spend years trying to get into TMZ mm-hmm. And then, um, and then we said, okay, well, now we need to get to get apps actually to go to go do this. And uh, and just so happened that the MMA guy Keith, uh, he went to Scopely, which is a very very large uh, app company. He said, hey Keith, you know, would you if we had this exclusive on, exclusive on TMZ, would you want to you know would you want to go provide apps for it? And he said, I said you know he got, he's like guys, this is never going to work. The numbers aren't going to work. This is uh, it's not gonna work for you, not gonna work for us, this, but this, this is going to be a pure favor for you guys. I'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll give you budget. Uh, and let's call this a branding play. And so, uh, but I, you know, I said, okay, great. We had this idea to two hours later. Now we pretty much had this full deal brokered. 
we have no code written whatsoever. So mm-hmm. and uh, and so I'm like, okay, I go off into my hole for like a, for about three weeks and just start coding up a storm, trying to you know do do this basic the basic infrastructure to be able to handle TMZ level load day one and actually provide you know go do uh, basic machine learning, some some big develop big data development, and uh, and kind of get this all working you know uh, well because we we had hoped that things would scale quickly. And it and it actually worked. I think the very first day we did like seventy installs of uh, on on TMZ. Uh, the next day the machine learning kicked in. We did one hundred and forty then uh, installs and two hundred and ten, and it's kind of it kept on like just ramping from there. I think we tapped out about three hundred and some installs or so per day. But it, uh, TMZ is owned by Warner Brothers, and when Warner Brothers started seeing how well it was performing, they said, "Well, hey, why don't you?" Why don't we put on some of our other sites, and then we just kind of it just really just started no, snowballing from there. Became your first customers, right? it, it did, and so Warner Brothers was our first customer, and uh, we we got very very lucky with that. But uh, then we convinced Keith to come on board as, as CEO of this one, and uh, and then we went off. We raised money. Uh, we we I think we in three weeks we raised a million dollars. And uh, we did it. Uh, granted, we had revenue at this point. And this we, is like an insane story. It, this is just like I don't know. We, again, like we were ramping like crazy, uh-huh. and uh, and it was just the three of us at this at this point. And I'm working on the house, and um, the other two guys are based in L.A. Uh, so we're trying, you know, trying to trying to communicate, trying to get this done. Uh, but we had a bunch of West Coast type money that were was got that had interest, and we had the guys from AdSense. Uh, they started AdSense and sold to Google, uh-huh. uh, and so we, and they they started a fund called Ten One Ten. And we, once we got them on board, we pretty much said it got, you know, kind of got a little bit of a uh, little bit of clout because we had the most successful uh, ad tech company in the world vouching for us, mm-hmm. and so we were able to get lowercase capital, which being the most successful fund in history. That was Chris Saka's fund, who uh, they they're most well known for being the largest shareholder of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're also so this is like Chris Saka, like famously like went around and like bought up. All, all the Twitter, Twitter shares, exactly. Right? When no one else believed, yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is that story, right? That, that then, is the story, yeah. And then that, uh, and then that led him to like invest in like every other hot startup, Uber, I don't Uber, know, it seems like Instagram, has, Twilio, yeah. Pinterest, okay, so Stripe. Got, they, it was, it was who did who was you meet, Did you like pitch Chris Sucker? We did, yeah. And uh, what was it like? It was it, like in, in the in it was, the real world. It was it was actually way more low key. It was just very did very conversational. The Western shirt, the like. We did over the phone initially. I did over the phone because he's based in Los Angeles. So my other two guys were there in person but yeah. i i was over the phone um and it was it, it was actually very very conversational it was actually once we he i would say there's like this massive you know massive uh you know uh diligence that was done and you know, a lot of back and forth but it really wasn't i think he after maybe two meetings he said yeah and he wrote a check and uh so it was actually way easier than i anticipated but you know it was I mean, when you have like you know, when you have like the Twitters and and, and Ubers already in your portfolio, you're able to kind of take a lot of swings mm-hmm. and and, uh, so and hopefully, he, I think we could say he was playing with house money. He, he was, he, he was. So he was, was ready bit, to go. Yeah. So, so that 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 ended up working out. But so, we, but both of these cases, it's kind of interesting. Let's go back a little bit and say, I mean, you, you're you're pretty much writing. I mean, you are the the engineering department for both these companies. It sounds like. Did you you know? Because I think I can't remember. You have to remind me. Like this seems like a little bit before like AWS and. And all that. So, I mean, this is where you just kind of like co-locating, like building your own server or building your own packages, maintaining it all. Like, how did how did you do all that? Yeah, the, the very first one was I was uh, hosted on Software, and uh, okay. and we uh, it was it was yeah, there's no AWS, there's no no packages. Right, so it was, this is just like you get. I had a server and use the and, server, to, you know, and SSH would, into it and get it going, right? Hopefully, that you know, keep the thing up. And uh, and uh, so that one just was tough because there's a lot a lot heavier lifting on DevOps. Uh, for for Kixer, that AWS had been out, and so okay. we had we were able to kind of launch on AWS, which was a lifesaver because that when that one ramped, that one really really ramped, and we uh, we 
we were up, up to 130 servers within probably about six months. So this is probably like you're using like EC2 at EC2 that point and all that stuff? Yeah, we, we were in like uh, OpsWorks and uh, we like all okay. their, yeah. Uh, we pretty much, we made very, very heavy use. And we didn't hire a DevOps person for probably two years into Kixer. So it was, it, I was doing doing it all for, for a long, I was doing all mm-hmm. the coding, all the DevOps. And, and, you know, AWS was, is just a lifesaver because that, that allows you to not have to do a whole lot of work and just, if you have it set up correctly, you can, it pretty much can scale and, you know, uh, with, with more traffic and, 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 go, and, uh, and, and down throttle whenever it needs to, it's, it's, it's a lifesaver. Okay. Awesome. So, and then go back. So it sounds like both these companies, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's always interesting to see where ideas came from. So, I mean, in this case, it sounds like it really was like, you're scratching your own itch, right? You're trying to like the first create, one was very much uh, scratch my own itch, yeah. And then because I was trying to think like today, I don't, I don't know. I mean, depending on what website, if you, usually if you go to like the media websites and you kind of go down, right? You see, I don't, I you know, I don't. To be honest, I never really called it like traffic exchange. You just kind of see what I would call like unusual links, but they are somehow like I guess clickbait, right? You're just like. You're like, I don't think I should click on this, but you finally, and then you're like, I'm clicking on this, right? Uh, so like, is that, I mean, that still seems like a, is that like an industry that's still like going, that it's, it's still working? Is it still kind of traffic exchange? Yeah, there, a- there is. It's been a ton of consolidation. Uh, when, I mean, when, when I was, we were going with Karotic Night, we got, it got so hot. We saw 26 competitors that were doing almost exactly the same thing that we were at one point. Okay. And so that was a little nerve wracking when you just see all this, all this fragmentation going on and like, how are we going to be able to compete? And people were just giving these unrealistic, you know, uh, promising the world. And that we knew that there's no way that could ever possibly fulfill that. Mm-hmm. And we just said, okay, let's just maintain. We're saying we're going to do these, hit these numbers, these, these KPIs for you. Uh, and we're going to just have a better product. We're not going to do clickbaity type, type articles. And it, you know, over time we, the, we had a better product and it ended up winning out and, right. uh, but there's a ton of consolidation. So now there's probably about four main, uh, main players in the space today. Okay. So when you're there, so it's kind of interesting. So I don't know, was it a strategic decision? Like, Hey, I don't want to raise money here because this sounds like it's going to become like a rapidly, uh, you know, commoditized and potentially, um, consolidation phase so it's like so that's going to put you in a better position right if you want to sell out and like try to like make some money like don't in this case don't don't have to try to sell for a billion dollars was that like a a conscious decision or did it just work out that way it was i would like to say it was it was very conscious uh but (laughs) the reality is the the story the way you want now the the acquisition (laughs) came in uh you know way quicker than i anticipated so uh Mm -hmm. offer came in so i'm like okay it's and granted we talked for a while before it actually ever happened uh, so we were able to, you know, I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to go raise money when I'm talking about selling this company, you know, mm-hmm. this company. So, uh, that it, it was, uh, it just happened so fast that mm-hmm. frankly didn't have time to go even really consider. I knew I needed to go cause all the, all but the, you knew something like, so you're going to have to make a decision. I right? knew I was going to have to take on a strategic partnership, which is why I was doing all, all these, all this reach out because we're, I was just seeing so many players come into the space. I'm like, okay, I need a, a major media company backing me. And this, I mean, Evolve Media is a major, major media company. They, uh, the, uh, the, the Chai, for instance, was was born from from Evolve Media. It's mm-hmm. one of the, I think, one of their a few of their account managers started it. And uh, uh, so it, it was it was a big big holding company. And uh, so I, I knew I needed the backing of a big big boy to really be able to survive. And and uh, that just ended up being an acquisition. So well, no matter how you did it, it seems like to me, it seems like one of the um, the least talked about decisions is like, hey, you know, like I'll, we'll just say you know, pre-product market fit, or as you're finding it, it's like, in your case, you know, zero VC, it sounds like you're just your own LLC. It's like, you know, you have a lot of advantages when you do that, right? Because you have, a, I guess you're just keeping, preserving optionality, right? Like you're giving yourself a lot more options that as soon as you take that first VC investor check, 
you know, expect, everything has changed. Expectations have changed. What you have to do has changed. And so, I don't know. I just, it seems like so much we talk about, like, people raising money, and it's always a good thing. But it's like, well, there's this other, th- you know, you've now limited your options, right? You can't have someone swoop in, write you what was probably, like, a really exciting outcome for you personally. Yeah. But wouldn't necessarily be really exciting to, like, a venture capital firm. And that's one of the biggest thing I think, you know, now I'm the put my VC hat on okay. now. That's one of the things I've, I've kind of realized more after the fact is how, you know, how thoughtful you have to be about how much you raise, if you raise. And I mean, even when we're, uh, when we're, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit to like Kixer, mm-hmm. like we were debating whether or not to go raise a series A or go sell. And one of the, the biggest things we started thinking about was like, okay, if we raise a series A, uh, we are going to pretty much have to, we're, we're going to have a pretty high valuation because our, our numbers can justify it. But that means that if we have to go get to, you know, doing, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and to get from where we were to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, that's a, that's a lot of risk to get there. There's mm-hmm. a lot of things that have to go right. And if anything goes wrong, then pretty much you're going to run out of money and you're going to have to, you're going to have to either be take a down round not, or you're going to fold. And so that the, just execution risk that, that occurs there is so high that people just don't think about that. Where if we, if we stayed small and didn't take much funding, we can pretty much control our own destiny. Do we, you know, what point do we actually want to sell? What point do we, uh, do we want to, you know, uh, do we want to convert it over to lifestyle business if we want to? Mm-hmm. There, we, again, this optionality is preserved, and you just don't have that as soon as you take a big check. Okay, so, so it's kind of interesting because like in, the, in Kickstarter case, right, you actually do. You go get the good meeting. It sounds like you're having all this success. You have the meeting with Chris Saga. Like, did you, like, how did you decide, like, how much money to take? That one, uh, we knew, we built an actual plan of like what we actually thought uh, from an expense perspective we were going to do. Mm-hmm. And we, I th- whenever I, you look at business plans, uh, people always have these lofty revenue like projections and then they have their expense projections. And if you ever look at, ever look at those and after the fact, the, the revenue projections are always, always wrong. They're always way, way higher than people anticipate mm-hmm. uh, or they end, up, they, they, they end up being. But if you look at the expense side, they are always almost spot on. People can project expenses very, very well. Mm-hmm. And so we took a, a slightly different approach. We said, okay, we know we can project expenses really, really well. What if we just have a managed burn? So we know that we want to burn 50K a month. And if, as we ramp up revenue, we are going to, uh, it's going to, you know, it's going to bring down uh, what our expenses are per month or burners per month. We're going to, we can go then higher. Mm-hmm. And so we can pretty much kind of manage every month. We want to keep, you know, manage 50 K a month burn. And this will get us, you know, this will get us to, you know, you know, a year and a half at least. And so we took this approach that we were going to, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to hire only when we, uh, started getting down to like say 40 K a month burn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we, we, and once we hired, of course it kind of stairs us back up to 50. And so we did this, this process over and over again. Uh, but we kind of based off of our numbers, what we knew we need to get to, to go raise series a, we knew, we knew we needed to get to a certain amount of revenue, uh, to be able to have a good chance or a range at least. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, we really built a model of this and it was actually, uh, it was a very flexible model, but we ended up being almost spot on from, uh, from actual what we actually projected we're going to do versus what we did. And that's because we, we really kind of managed our burn uh, smartly. So it sounds like, you know, you, you kind of take the approach of like, you can control what you spend. That you can 100% control, right? So that seems Absolutely, to be yeah. the, in this equation, like you really locked in on that. And then, you know, to your earlier point, like really no one controls how much they sell, no matter what anybody says. Like no, no matter what Salesforce numbers you look at, it, it's, it's always like a mystery, at least until you've done it for a while. At least until right. there's something that's repeatable. So, so that seems like the place where you like, okay, I'm, you, 
maybe conservative is not the right way, but you sort of like started with like realistic objectives versus just like the classic hockey stick. Right. right. We, we, we tried doing base rates on everything. So we knew that we, we didn't know at some point after we had a few hires that, that a new salesperson was going to generate a hundred X number dollars in revenue. So we, once we had that basic number, we, it was really easy to, to plug in and say, okay, well, this is what our revenue is going to be. If once we, you know, uh, once we can do another hire and, uh, and and that that allowed us to uh, pretty much allowed us to make sure we always stay cash flow positive. We never got into real trouble or say something had happened in the macro. We just couldn't raise money for whatever reason. We knew we could just not hire for a little while and be in the black and be be okay. And that okay. was like that was a plan to to for one survive, uh, but two you know to uh, uh, to kind of to uh, hopefully ramp revenue as fast as we could, as we could without taking on too much risk. Gotcha. And looking back on it, we probably could have been even more aggressive than we were, but. Uh, that was the first time really trying to manage uh, manage a, a, a burn. So we we took a little bit more conservative type approach. Right, and there's always like the pull and the push, right? Like if you're seeing success, then the, everyone wants to give you money and wants you to spend it fast. And if you're if it's not working, it's like okay, guys, there's no more money when this runs out. So figure it out. I don't know. It seems like always like the push and pull of those situations. I mean, the the joke in the, in the industry is like it's you know the VCs either either love uh, virgins or love rocket ships, and if you're <laughs> if you want the two, otherwise you're don't you're, don't be something different. Exactly. Okay, so well, let's talk a little bit about the business of Kickstarter. So, I mean, I think app and stuff. So, I don't know how was it working. Like, how do you actually get paid? Was this kind of like almost like the Apple you know uh, referral program, like? If uh, if you generate an app install, then uh, you know you get like a kickback. Like how how did that work? Actually, yeah. So it's uh, so it's a pretty standard type process that if you go work say with with Uber for instance, mm-hmm. for every uh, they can measure they can tell when you install came from a link of yours. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's something like something very similar to like a, a Google Analytics for apps like affiliate link. Yeah, kind of, kind of like yeah, mm-hmm. and that kind of does all the matching fingerprint matching of like okay, this link caused this install, and we uh, so we. Pretty much went through and started working with all the. Uh, we actually, honestly, we took were order takers. Uh, once the people started seeing Kickster and they started seeing some uh, a fair amount of volume going through the, the Kickster platform, all the top fifty app uh, developers started reaching out to us, mm-hmm. and we pretty much were just we're, we're literally were taking orders uh, and uh, for for them to to be on our platform, and then they would negotiate against you know each other. Said, okay, well, if you want more volume, then you need to pretty much up how much you pay per install, and so they would pay us. Between two dollars up to a hundred dollars for every install that occurred, and uh, and we and typically there's some that you hardly ever generate install, so you need it to be closer to a hundred, and then some you're able to generate install very very easily, so that could be like two dollars, mm-hmm. and so it just depends how how successful uh, the actual app was as, as well um, for how much you know how much volume we'd actually do for someone, uh, but we would that was the basic business model. It's actually uh, it was a pretty standard type practice as far as like, if you look at most, uh, most advertising, uh, out there for apps, that's and even Facebook, that's, that's a very similar type of, uh, pricing. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this comes down to like no group of people is, is like more hungry for, uh, tactics is worth than like marketing, demand generation, growth, whatever you want to call it. Right. Cause, cause obviously like all those guys on the, the back end, right. They know lifetime value of like an Uber install, right. They have the numbers. So I'm sure they, they're like, yeah, if I can give you $2, for every one of these things. And I know it's, you know, the lifetime value of Uber customer. I don't know what it is, but I'm sure it's like thousands of dollars or hundreds, at least exactly, hundreds yeah. of dollars that they're, you know, as soon as they find it out, it's going to work. It's just like back up the truck, right? Like how much money can I give you? And how, you know, you know, when are you tapped out? Right. So that's, uh, it sounds like in both these businesses, like you're really, I mean, you always talk about like the pain points. It's like, I mean, you're just at like, you know, obvious pain points. Like as soon as it starts working, there isn't, 
going to have to be a lot of sales, right? Or a lot of like, you know, going on site, doing a sales presentation. It's more like, no, no, I want this right away. So again, is that luck or is that just like, are you just attracted to problems like that? I mean, I, I people try overcomplicating you know what their solution is going to be mm-hmm. really really a lot and like, so I, we could say all of enterprise software i yeah. would say it <laughs> generally falls in this category yeah and i always have taken the approach that you know it's have a simpler business is better because it's very very obvious what you need to go do mm-hmm. and it and you're allowed you can scale over it's easier also to describe the, the company if you really can't describe and, and can't tell who exactly you're going to be solving a problem for very very quickly then it's you know that's probably you don't have product market fit, mm-hmm. and uh, and we were thankfully able to we kind of knew the knew the problems and uh, for one because it was scratching our own itch and the other one was we uh, we we just we've seen the industry and we we kind of knew that there was a, a major problem, um, and I think it just allowed us to to kind of build the right product uh, almost you know the first time which goes a long ways. That's awesome. So so how big did this um this team like Kixer get before uh you know another acquirer came knocking? I think we were actually we were able to uh stay keep us around 10 people actually when we actually finally okay. sold. Uh and that's What was the mix there was it like a couple like a couple of business partners and It was 50% and- yeah so it was five five devs uh five on the business side. And so we were more of a technology company than anything and mm-hmm. uh we Typically, um, I mean, one of the things we did was I tried always solving all problems with computers whenever I could. So if you look at most media companies, they have these, uh, these people that they're called traffickers and they pretty much take a campaign and they say, this, this campaign needs to go run on this website and usually do a bunch of college hires to go do that. Uh, and they pretty much spend all their, their entire day trying to figure out where, where to go run any different campaign. And so we did, it was like, okay, well we can do this with computers and, you know, machine learning. So we uh, we pretty much created this, we call the auto trafficker mm-hmm. and we're able to, you know, have this run and this runs 24 seven. Uh, it doesn't come in hungover. It, it's able to, <laughs> it's always available. It's always available. Um, granted we'd had a few, issues keep always making it available, but it, it mostly ran. Right. And, um, and, but that allowed us to not have to hire a, a ton of people. And right. so that, uh, we're able to keep our headcount low because our whole goal was to actually keep a very, very low headcount. Because once you get to be a larger size, it's hard to, you know, you start running into communication issues and uh, kind of keep the unified vision of where you want to go. So we, we always liked having very, very, very smart uh, people that, and uh, you say you're kind of your, 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 your super strong engineers, right, senior your engineers, 10X engineer your 10X engineer, right. ideally. And, uh, and, and more of those you can have, you, you can reduce your, your communication overhead needed mm-hmm. and uh, it can go much, much quicker. Okay. So you, okay. So you get this thing, it's going well. And then what's the name of the company that, that basically came and was like, Hey, why, why don't we value yeah, was... next star broadcasting? All right. So, so what happened this time? So now it's kind of like, you know, you've been through this once before, so they show up and, uh, how does the conversation happen? This one took a little bit longer to kind of go through, but, uh, they, I can't remember how we got introduced. We started stacking our bench early on with advisors and, and investors that could get us acquired from mm-hmm. almost from day one. And I can't, this came in through one of our advisors. They said, well, you should go talk to, to Kixer. And, uh, and so we started talking to them uh, for a while. And, uh, and that one was a, a process that, oh, we can get this deal done in two months. And, of course, they, they always say that, but it, it takes a closer to six yeah. months. Uh, and so six months in the making, we were trying, you know, we're trying to, we're flying out. To, they're based in Dallas. And so we were, uh, we're flying out to Dallas. We we're also going and talking to two or three other companies that were our competitors and say, hey, look, we're about to go sell. You guys are interested. We, we you should you know we should go talk. And so we were also flying out to to some of our other so competitors. Do like a little roadshow, basically it, making it around. It was we we we. I remember there's a, f- a few times where we went. We 
went right from like Dallas out to uh, to like Sarasota uh, and take a red eye out there to have another conversation you know, the next day. And that was and that was a pretty common thing where we just we were we were going back and forth to have these conversations. And it, it does take a toll after a while, too. But mm-hmm. and trying to keep the business running and not have you know, any slips, because if you never slip at all while you're going through this process, they're going to use that as an excuse to lower the price. Yes. So you always want to have at least a second or third type of possible acquire to kind of keep them honest. Right. So they, you actually get the, the number they initially kind of, they talk about, mm-hmm. which is one of those things that no one ever talks about either, which is like that these numbers, uh, your numbers are going to slip when you're trying to go through, you know, create a data room and go through and, and, uh, and talk to, you know, due diligence. On, it, it takes a lot, a lot of time. And, and if you don't have a, something that's wor- always worried about execution, you're going to have a few missteps. And that's, we, we saw the same thing where we started, our numbers started slipping towards the end. Uh, and uh, thankfully we were able to keep them honest because we had a, we had a plan B if they, if they tried changing so the deal on did, us. Was it kind of a similar situation that you felt like, Hey, the, the best outcome here is, is to sell now versus like, we should take more money we, and grow. So we were, or- yeah, we were, I guess taking a step back, we were in uh, late stage discussions to, for a series A. Okay. And so the valuation we were talking to, the acquirer for was higher than the valuation that the the VC was talking to, to us for. And so we kind of, we said, okay, well we held firm on valuation of the VC if we wanted to go raise series a, uh, but, uh, we end up you know, just doing the math. We said, well, frankly, if we, if we do take the series a, that means we have to now get our, our revenues into the hundreds of millions. And, uh, there's again, a lot of execution risk. Uh, but we, we said, started the numbers. Okay. We're going to get diluted by how much. And then, you know, we're going to be in this business for at least another five years. And, uh, so we started doing the math and said, well, what would actually end up in our pocket is going to be more, but it's not like, like, like a whole lot more. It's not right. And so it's like, well, this is life changing in itself. So we should probably, we should probably just sell now and, and, you know, burn a hand type, you know, approach. And, uh, and that was, I looking back on it, that was by far the smartest thing we could have done. I think I was actually on the on the side that I think we should you should hold out and go for a bigger number. And uh, my other two business partners are saying no, we need we should be selling. And I think they were they're clearly right on this one. <laughs> it's a burden here. So so you uh, you eventually do the deal mm-hmm. right, and you, and uh, and then you end up taking a position at the acquiring company, right? Correct. Uh, yeah. And was that like a part of the agreement? You had to like stay for a certain amount of time. Yeah. Or was there vesting? Like how did that work? Yeah, we had a one year earnout, which is shockingly low normally it's at least two years and mm-hmm. uh we had a one year earnout so that, that made the the whole deal a whole lot easier to kind so of like an earn out for everybody is like you've got some fine like the company that you sold needs to like make a certain amount of money right, right? and then you basically get yeah get, i can't actually remember the exact percentages were but roughly 50 percent we got up front and 50 percent we had hit certain numbers during mm-hmm. earnout process okay and uh and thankfully we were able to hit the numbers uh so that that made it a whole lot easier but we were so we obviously were stayed very engaged but during that time, we said, okay, well, we're going to only focus on our company. We're not going to do anything else corporate-wide because um, that's sometimes a push as soon as you get in to go go work on, you know, they want you to go work on something else. I said, mm-hmm. if we have these earnout numbers, we want to be focused on this, and this is, you know. This we, is it. This, this is, is your it. mission, yeah. And, uh, but we also want to be able to be able to go hire. So this is kind of a way of almost getting some uh, some actual money in the door as well to go do more hiring. So we were able to double our headcount through that time period to go hit the earnout numbers. And, uh, and so that made it, that that's another way almost kind of get quote unquote funding to, to hit your earnout numbers. Right. And so that was uh, so one so way. Someone else is basically paying for the, that head count. Exactly. That, you it's like almost go. like pre-selling your company, uh-huh. you know, is, is kind of what, kind of what it conceptually is similar to. And, uh, we, uh, so we doubled our head count and, uh, we, we were hitting our numbers and then once the, once we, it was very clear that we were going to hit our earnout, then they started asking us to go do some other things. And so they asked us to all kind of stay on, uh, and to take on larger roles within the company. 
uh, which, you know, they asked me to take on a C-level type role, which has been kind of cool at a $8 billion company to, you know, to be a C-level. But uh, I, you know, we, we all decided we were, we were going to ultimately pass on it because I think I kind of wanted to get out of corporate America. And frankly, at that point, I was so burnt out from, uh, from doing, you know, f- doing startups for, for a few years. I, I needed, I knew I needed a break as well. Okay. So you took a break. So you get out and then uh, I know you've done a bunch of fun stuff like, you know, go to South America and, yeah. <laughs> you know, other, other life events. Um, but then it seems like, you know, and kind of like searching around for a bunch of different ideas. I think you started, thought about starting some companies, but then more recently, right? You've, you've officially, are you like officially a venture capitalist now? You've Apparently officially, officially, yeah. Is it like all, has, has the, the paperwork been signed? Is it, <laughs> the paperwork's all been signed. I'm officially on the dark side now. Okay. So what, because uh, I, I think this is a job that like, uh, as many people, I'm sure, like have gotten, re- you know, I'm going to call them the regular white collar jobs. You go in, you send your resume, interview, and you know, answer questions, whatever. Maybe do some exercises. But like, what's like, what is the VC interview process like? Like, how do you even like get an interview? What do you do? Well, it, it's it actually was no interview at all. It uh-huh. was it was purely networking. I uh, I was at some event and uh, and Surf Group actually was at the event and they were trying to get get me to become an LP in their fund. And uh, so I LP is LP limited is a, partner, yeah, right? And, invent, uh, and obviously you're going to give them your money. Give my money to go invest in another company, exactly. And uh-huh. so I. Uh, and I, I'm like, well, I, I am seeing a ton of deal flow. I don't really, you know, I don't need, I, you. I don't need you guys. And, uh, <laughs> but we, we kind of worked together for a while. We were kind of, uh, I was working with them on, on a few deals and we were kind of talking about co-investing on a few deals and I helped them run diligence on a few things they were, they were looking at. And, uh, and then we, we kind of during the same time, we started developing the same kind of investment thesis. And, uh, one of the thesis I was kind of, I was doing lots of angel investing, even after I sold mm-hmm. the first company. Uh, and, uh, one of the things I was seeing though, is I was looking at companies on the West coast and I was seeing the valuations there was just off the charts high. And then I looked at the same company at the same stage and it was a fraction of amount and just give some, put some numbers on this. Like I was, uh, I was looking at like, for instance, a company that was doing a million dollar run rate in Austin, we were, I was able to get an, at a valuation of like three to 4 million post money valuation. Mm-hmm. And if you do the, that same company in Silicon Valley would have been probably closer to 15 to 20 million. So the net net for you, right. Just so everyone gets that is that, you know, you basically can put in the same amount of money, but own a much larger stake, right? That's why it's, exactly. that's why it benefits you. Right. Yeah. And the people in Austin, in this case, you know, they just, they don't have access to what, for whatever. And there's some perceive of there's lack of competition for that deal as compared to California. Yeah. So there's, what's happening there. There's just a surplus of, of capital in Silicon Valley right now. Just mm-hmm. the, the amount of money that's in, in Silicon Valley right now is up 54% in the past five years. Wow. And there's all these billion dollar funds that are like John Catalyst just raised a billion dollar fund. There's a bunch that, that are, are, are uh, just, there's just a ton of money out there. Uh-huh. But if you look in Austin, we're down 27% in five years. So, and that was a lot of that's Austin Ventures. So it's kind of like geography arbitrage going on here. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, in, but you see, there's all these p- other pockets out in the United States that you see the same type of thing happening where there's just pockets where there's just not much funding out there, but there's some really good companies and places you wouldn't think, uh, like Salt Lake City, mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta, uh, uh, there's a, a handful that like even like Chicago that are, are very, very, very good uh, pockets of, of good companies that are, are low valuations. So I started thinking, had this thesis, well, how can I actually go find these companies and actually go invest more of my own personal money in it? And at the same time, Seraph Group was actually doing something similar where they were trying to invest in these, these pockets where there was uh, good valuations and just a lack of capital. And, uh, and so it just happened that they said, well, we want to go open up a fund in Austin and because uh, we see this as one of the areas where there's just not enough capital. And would you be interested in being the GP of that? I mean, that's literally the, the conversation uh, that I think was actually even the email. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we started talking about that. And 
and it took us a while to kind of come to terms of how, how it would be structured, what it would look like. And, um, and, but we eventually kind of signed the deal and now in the process of actually raising the, the fund here in Austin. So I think there's like a couple things to like unpack there. Like one, I, I've had this theory, I don't know, somebody else has probably figured it out. It's like, I have this theory that like the higher you, um, the higher the position in the organization, the less formal and uh, shorter the interview process. So like if you were like, so just to give you a specific example, if you're like a new college grad and you're interviewing for like a software position, like they're going to bring you in and they're going to have to do all these like puzzles on a whiteboard and you're going to have to like answer all these questions. It's probably going to be like a full day of interviewing, right? Um, and then there's going to be like a panel of people are like, is this person good or bad, right? And this is like the typical corporate stuff that goes on. And then I often find like these executive positions and even, I don't know, the VC, I don't have as much insight to it. It's like, it's... Uh, you know, it's just very informal. It's really, really quick. And I guess what people are using is they're using your previous experience as signaling, right? That they've, they've seen what you've done. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It always makes me wonder sometimes when I'm in like either giving an interview that's longer or I'm, or I'm interviewing for something. I'm always like, you know, it, it, you know, if we were, if I was like three levels up, this would probably go a lot faster and a lot shorter. So it's just a weird, a weird thing in, in society today. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's absolutely true. I think if, if you can look at it, people just start knowing people by reputation, and that kind of goes a long ways. And, uh, and I, I've seen this even. I, I was asked to go interview at a number of uh, companies, Fortune um, 10 companies even, for, for high levels within, within that, that, uh, those orgs. And I, uh, I didn't want to go back to corporate America. But I, uh, it was, it was, there wasn't really, again, a formal interview process. There, there was, but it wasn't. It was, you know, I have to go talk to the board of directors and stuff like that. But it wasn't like a... It was a little bit different than kind of what you might be expecting. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that's interesting. So, okay, so you kind of, you know, you hook up with these guys, and it sounds like, you know, you've become the, gen- we say GP, the general partner. So so maybe we should, like, do a little before and back after, right? So you were, or I guess you are, maybe you always will be an angel investor, right? So, like, how did you find angel investments? What was that like? What was your, quote, due diligence process when, like, people pitched you and you gave them money? So what, what was that like? And then now as you're about to convert to, like, a formal you know, general partner, like how was that going to change for you? Yeah. I mean, uh, so when I, I started angel investing back in probably 2010 or so, and, uh, and a lot of that was just, again, networking people, uh, I'd go to investor pitches and kind of see people pitch. And I was honestly trying to figure out the best way to find good deals, uh, back then. And I, and I, that was kind of a, a lot of lesson learned uh, learned through that, that process. So when you say like, this would be like somebody would put together like 10, 10, um, Startups would come in and like someone would put together like a panel. Yeah, I'm like a demo day type thing. Like a demo day and then just yeah. invite a bunch of like, angel investors. So you just kind of sit in the, in the room and, you know, like make notes on the ones you thought were good. And that's exactly how I started. Okay. And, uh, and then, but that kind of progressed. And once people started seeing me write checks, uh, then I started getting people that were also investors saying, hey, you should also look at this deal. Mm-hmm. And that's when you started getting much, much better companies, frankly. And, okay. uh, and most of my, I think to say all my best deals came through a referral from another investor that was currently in the company. Okay. And, uh, and that, that's really where you, I think, uh, it, there's this idea of if the company goes to what we call market, which means they kind of go to the larger, you know, larger pool of investors out there that it might not be as a, as a hot of a deal, as good of a deal. You want the, you're looking for deals that are pretty much that no one can get into, that there's only a handful of investors and, mm-hmm. and it's almost like a, so like everything in like is either create exclusivity or fake exclusivity, and right? Like, like you have a bar with nobody in it, just put a rope up. Just that's make it, exactly you know what I mean? It. It's, it's like, or you have a bar that's full of people, 
Put a rope up. Either way, it's the same thing. Make it look that way. Yeah. Right? Once you have a little scarcity, <laughs> people will come come knocking. And, uh-huh. uh, so it has to be. You always have to, have to be perceived as a hot deal. Yeah. And uh, and that's even when we were fundraising. I think when we were fundraising for for Kixer, we we initially said we're going to raise. We're only raising four hundred thousand dollars. We knew full well we're going to raise more than that. Right. We, we said we we're only raising four hundred thousand dollars. And then, and we started talking to people and say, look, we're mostly committed. This might be our very first conversation, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, look, we, we might get, we might get pushed up a little bit higher, but, um, cause we, we promised a few people to, to be in, right. but, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty much, we're, we're capping at 400 K. So likely. you've been on both sides. So like, you know what you said before it was maybe, maybe true or I don't want to say not true, but, or maybe like aggressive. And now, yeah. so now when people say that to you, like, do you have a totally different, yeah. like, do you I call mean, BS on it quickly? Or I can call BS on it pretty quickly. I'm like, I'm like, all right, well, I always ask them, well, who, who are your investors? And I want to go talk, you know, I want to compare notes with them. And then it's always interesting to see, you know, how quickly they come up with, uh, with answers. And, uh, okay. And that's so it's, it's definitely you, you want to go check, you know, do check some reference out. checking. Yeah. Right. And it's fine. I mean, I, I know the game now, so it's not like uh, it's, it's anything shocking. Mm-hmm. I know people, you know, I know that's how you have to do it. Right. So, so as an angel investor, I don't know. I know you can like, I'm, there are no rules, but like, it feels like, you know, those, those are like 25 K 50 K, maybe like a hundred K kind of investments. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and then that's, and uh, you know, again, like you can, that's just a, a broad brush. I'm you know, you, if you can convince anyone to give you money, get us, get what you want. Right. So let's put that aside. But now that you're, um, cause are you, how would you describe your new firm? Is it like a seed stage? Is it a series yeah. A or B? Maybe like talk about like what those should mean, should mean to everyone. Cause it's like, it seems like there's a lot of confusion now. Like what is the difference between a seed <laughs> and a series A? Like the money's, there's a lot of money out there and the valuations are getting pretty high. So how are you thinking about this? Yeah, this, this could change tomorrow because it, <laughs> it, it is so rapidly. We actually was having a conversation with another VC yesterday and, and we're, we're actually discussing, well, what, what do you actually consider as a series A at this point? And, uh, I can tell you what, what it is, the, the, what's, the, what's considered you know, what it, today, but this will change rapidly. Mm-hmm. And also, Silicon Valley is even much, much different than this. Right. But seed is typically you uh, are sub $500,000 annualized run rate, mm-hmm. um, and I would I consider that seed. Uh, and uh, Series A, you, there's a big gap. There's not a whole lot between, uh, between like 500K to uh, probably a million to a million and a half. For, and after that, then you start seeing uh, Series A investment, investors start coming in. But really, if you wanted a Series A investment, um, you need to be over those numbers. And and I'm even starting to see some companies now, what I consider to be a seed investment, are, are currently hitting a million dollar type run rates pretty consistently. Um, and so the so seed uh, so right now the current the current progression is friends and family when you're kind of pre revenue uh, just trying to get something off the ground, mm-hmm. and then you have the seed investor comes in once you actually start showing that you have revenue. Uh, hopefully, it's at least some. And then uh, Series A is now like okay, we have revenue. We know we can make this repeatable. We want to we want to blow this up, and uh, that's a typical typical process. And the sizes vary dramatically depending on the the, the company and the industry. But that's a broad strokes what it looks like. Okay, and then, so what's the um, amount of money that you know if if we think about your new job here, like. What's the ideal amount of money you're trying to deploy in one specific company? Is it like the like one to five million? Is it like more than that? Is it less than that? It does it, it not matter? It, it depends. Uh, so we we do. Uh, I, I like to bring a lot of math to this. Uh-huh. My my 
my background for a long time is writing. I also, I kind of glossed over a little bit, but I, I write algorithms do uh, to trade on the public markets. And so I take a lot of, a very mathematical approach to a lot of this. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look kind of the public markets of the 1950s and 1960s, they were pretty efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you compare to what they are today, they're, they're, you know, computers have taken over and, and they and are, are remarkably efficient. Right. But you look at venture capital, I'd say it's about as efficient as it was in the 50s and 60s on the public okay. side. And so if you can apply, have some basic computers and some basic uh, math in there, you can start doing very, very well. And what, what I've, I've done is uh, kind of looked at, actually looked at what is the possibility of, uh, of a, someone getting an acquisition um, and, uh, and what does the actual that size look like. And based off of like what valuation you have and what the probability of you actually getting an acquisition based off of whatever the company like you has ever done, I, I can actually size it mathematically very, very appropriately. So... Sometimes it might be as little as a hundred thousand. Sometimes it might be it might be three million, mm-hmm. and that's all going to depend on kind of what your company is and what the the likelihood uh, and of, of and what where you currently are. So it's it's a, a massive range, and but I'd say in general it's it's a low end is a hundred thousand. We haven't done too many of those, and I'd say on a seed stage it's about five hundred to a, a million. And then on Series A, it's, it's about it's a million to, to two million. Okay, so that's where the serif, that's kind of the area you want to play. You're like, yeah. just to contrast that with like like a, what is it like the SoftBank, right? Where they're going to deploy like a hundred million dollars into like Uber or something like that's you know a whole another category of like late stage private equity, you know, massive in just a whole other world, right? So just I think I like to think of those two extremes. So okay, all right. So why don't we you know give everybody some tips then? So now you're not you're you're the gatekeeper to money, right? So like so I walk into the your office, or I don't even know. Maybe maybe, maybe we we'll just maybe we'll meet for coffee if it's informal. <laughs> but like uh, so of course I'm gonna bring like. A beautiful looking PowerPoint, right? I mean, that's just like, I mean, you just have to have that, right? And it's going to have some great story and it's going to be like, it's great. We're going to be great. And then at the end, it's going to have this hockey stick graph looking thing, right? And probably have like some huge market share number. Like the market for this is like a hundred trillion dollars and we just got to get like, you know, one tenth of 1% and then we're going to be, you know, billionaires, right? So I got something that looks like that. And you're like, you're consuming this, right? And you're like, and then, uh, and then I assume like, I'm, I'm ideally, I want to like give you some numbers. I want to be able to be like, well, here's my revenue and my, this is my customer acquisition cost. And this is the lifetime value of my customer. Um, but like, so if I walked in, I did all that. What, what have I not done for you? What have I like not impressed you with? And then two, like, are you even going to look at my PowerPoint? Or are you just going to like page through that real quick? Like what, what's going to happen? Yeah. So I, I will try, I will ask for a PowerPoint before we ever meet. And I will go through the PowerPoint and, uh, and I won't go into fine grain detail, but I'll go, I will look at, I'll do my homework before we get there. So mm-hmm. we can actually have a constructive conversation. So wait, homework, you mean like, are you like looking at competitors, value proposition, just like familiarizing? Like yeah. what, what are you going to do? When I, I'm, I'm, not looking, there? I'm looking for the, why you guys are unique versus here's the thing. I, I, I see so many deals and I can, you know, right now I think I've seen six chatbot companies in the past, like past two months mm-hmm. and, uh, or some variation of that. And so how is your company going to be different from every other chatbot company out there? And uh, so it, it is, and that's usually one of two things. You need there to be, uh, have some, just some, something brilliant that you just, you know, unexpected way that you have some type of, you know, unique uh, exclusive deal that no one else does, or you, ha- or you have a, a team that has done it in this space uh, or there's a, or something that, you know, that there's something that's exclusive to you that only you guys have that is going to make you better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. So the unique value proposition. Um, the second thing I look for is I look at the, the team. Do they have founder market fit? And so what that means is do the founders understand their market? They've been in this space for a long time. 
I don't want to be paying for someone to be, to go learn how to uh, be in healthcare if they've never been in healthcare before. Just the number of contacts you need in that in a space, uh, and actually understand that the the overall industry is is so massive that um, that unless you are from that space, it's not something I, I typically will, will look at. Mm-hmm. Um, I also look to see do they have product velocity, and that's sometimes tough to tell from a from a PowerPoint. But I, I try gleaning just based off of. Who's I go I go I'll go on LinkedIn and see okay who are the developers have, do you have any sense of like they actually are able to go code and, and, and iterate on products very very quickly so can they can they get stuff out the door very very quickly and, and go test stuff and then the third thing I look at is is it a rising tide uh, for the market so is this market that they're in is it going up and can they be successful in spite of themselves is it going to be something where they you know if you look at like say the Snapchats of the world probably not the best management but they've been very successful because they've been in a rising tide. And uh, is, is it a space where they can, that you can be successful just by being in the marketplace you're in? And if you have those three things, those are typically, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll usually take the meeting and go and go talk to the team. Uh, and I, I usually will go meet in coffee uh, and, uh, and, and, try, and try figuring out uh, what, you know, what is the, um, what, how well do they understand the marketing, understand the unit, unit economics of, a, of whatever they're doing. Again, this is broad because some, a lot of companies are different, but uh, how well do they actually, do they really have uh, f- uh, founder market fit? Uh, do they actually really, can they iterate and, and improve on things? And honestly, are they going to be, where they, what are the motivations for doing this? Are they doing this for, because they want to make money or are they doing this because they just believe in this idea so much they want to change the world and they're going to work day and night to go do it? And, you know, you, you really want the latter. Uh, if, you, if someone says they're doing it for the money, that's usually, you know, a quick, people give up on that stuff pretty quickly. Uh, so I, I tend to, those are like the, the high level things I typically look for. Uh, and then, um, that they usually, you can, you can suss it out pretty quickly. And then also, do they have any sense of like, uh, of being able to go get follow on funding? So it's one thing to fund, uh, the first round, but you always have to worry about, okay, can this company go and raise a follow on round? Uh, is this going to be something that's appealing to a series, uh, series A or series B investor? And uh, can I go sell this to a Series B investor to go to go buy my shares at Series B if I if I need to? And so I'm actually already figuring out looking about the next fundraise and are they positioning them, positioning themselves well now with the current amount that they're trying to raise to be able to go do the next round of funding? If they are fund, if they're raising too high, then you can't. The, this can be difficult to justify those numbers in the next round, and you're going to get crammed down by the, the follow-on investors. If they're raising too low, which is actually also a problem. Uh, you don't want to raise too low because then the founders don't have enough equity to make it worth their while to even continue doing the business. And so there's this medium t- that you have to kind of find to, to, uh, to build it, you know, to find the, the, I guess the go to locks level of, of what's right. What's well, right. I think, you know, at the end, right, you're trying to find that, uh, that equation of aligned incentives, right? Where yeah. like you've given them enough money that if it's successful, you'll, you, the VC will make money. And then of course that they're going to make money. They're invested too, because they're going to make money. So I think that's, you know, one of those things that, um, obviously companies that have been around for a long time that are like raising down rounds, kind of a different world then, because then it's sort of like, you know, everyone's getting washed out. Right. But early on, I, I do think it's, it's, um, like even a VC that sort of like, you know, presents a lot of own risk terms on founders. It's like, you're just going to end up with people that don't want to work with you. Right. So you're not, um, so then you have to hopefully have picked this market that was just going to succeed like no matter what. Right? right. Um, well, how do you balance? So that's all seems like very reasonable. Those seem like, you know, things you, you know, you as a founder can probably, you know, take inventory of yourself and your company to be like where you fit. But then there's like, do you find yourself swayed by, 
you know, all the emotional stories, all the, the hero stories of like Mark Zuckerberg was in the, the, the Harvard, you know, cause he, it sounds like he probably wouldn't fit like any of those categories or, uh, and there's like numerous, like, I guess Evan Spiegel at snap. And like, you know, these are the stories like we like hear a lot about, although they may be more rare than we think they are. But like, do you, do you find like if someone here, cause we listen, just cause we live in Austin, like, you know, some guy is in his dorm room at university of Texas, Austin. And he's, I don't know. He walks in with some like crazy looking social site of, you know, tomorrow. Um, like, will you, do you, do you think you, one, would you even look at it? And two, like, do you find yourself dissuade just like any other normal human being, like just by emotion, like this guy seems smart. He seems, this seems like a great idea. Uh, or are you able to like distill and just kind of pass on that stuff? Yeah, I think at this point, when early on in my career of angel investing, yeah, I could be easily swayed by some very passionate type of founder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at this point, you almost start as you almost start every single conversation. It sounds you know, which is against my nature, being cynical, mm-hmm. and you think, okay, this is never going to work. Convince me otherwise, and uh, and that's a good way of like a good way of actually. Uh, and a lot of founders are able to do that very very easily if they can if they can, uh, do a compelling enough story. Um, and I think one of the things, you know, I look at the Mark Zuckerberg's or the other major, you know, the, all the unicorns of the world, uh, it's, there's, uh, this idea of like, you need to build a price at 95% of all the, all the companies out there, uh, with the correct valuation. And then also know when the art of it is knowing, knowing the 5% where valuation doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And so there are some times where those stories where you think, okay, is this, could this be just a beyond a unicorn to being just a, a you know, being a, a rocket ship that. Uh, that that you you know, you'll never look back on, and that no matter what they say or do, that it's going to be you know this is going to be you know it's going to be a unicorn. I have yet to really seen any of those uh, myself that right. I fully you know fully believed and actually have seen it go through to become a unicorn. Um, but I think uh, I think that's that's kind of like the the thing you're also trying to think in your back of your head is this is this could this be you know, just a, a billion dollar type company, uh, and, and even, even bigger. Mm-hmm. So do you actively sometimes like just think about that? Like, okay, I've put them through like, let's call it like the normal valuation process. And then you kind of like come up with this and then you, uh, and then maybe like there is just this, I don't know how else you to do it. Like some kind of like emotional, like, okay, let's just apply the rocket ship thought for a second. Like, you know, kind of going the other way, like what's the best case. Right. And cause I mean, I, I think I always wonder, um, Again, maybe it's back to uh, uh, um, you know your first investor, right, in Kickstarter, right, um, where he sort of like saw it, right. He bought up all this Twitter stuff. Like he clearly saw, he had a belief that other people didn't have, right. In yeah. um, so I don't know if it's even worth like, is it worth sometimes like doing that, just being like, let's actually think, not even cynically, let's think like you know pie in the sky unicorn, like what does it look like, and then you run that test and and say to yourself like, okay, well like because this could be a hundred billion dollars. Um, even if you don't meet these other characteristics, that's going to get you over the hump, right? I'm going to write you a check anyway. Well, that's one of the things that when I, my very first, uh, the opening round of discussions I have with the company, one of the things I always kind of close on is I ask them, okay, imagine the stars align and everything went perfectly well. What could this company look like? And uh, what I want to hear at that point is the vision of what, what would the, the unicorn world domination. Exactly. <laughs> Tell me how this, how you guys are going to control the world and, and just finally change the, the world. It's really interesting to hear kind of what you know, uh, how how much of a visionary or how you know how much how far does the CEO founder look out in the future to actually really see something? Is this are they only looking? They can't look past two years, and so they're not going to build for that you know that unicorn type level. Mm-hmm. Or are they are they envisioning? Okay, I know I have to execute A, B, and C to get this to to some you know to our current stage to actually build it to you know be able to do anything. But you know there is a possibility if the, if the stars align that we could go and and just blow this out, mm-hmm. and this is what that would look like. 
and that's what I, I do look for that in the early early conversations, and that will help you know help define of like okay, what is the actual end valuation need to be as well as far as like the what could this possibly be? If this if they are looking at a company that's never going to be more than thirty million, well, and they're looking and they want a fifteen million type valuation. Well, then it's, it's tough to justify. And, uh, it, it, so it's, it's one of those things that you do that I do try sussing out early on. All right. Cool. Well, I always think of myself, you know, it's like, uh, cause everyone knows all the stories like Uber and Facebook, but, uh, um, more recently, you know, I always think to myself, like, like here in Austin, we're always like one step below or right? one step behind like San Francisco, but like we see all the scooters like Lime and Jump. And it's like, so even now, even after Uber success and all these other things, um, cause I remember the first time I saw a scooter, I was just like, just like, what is that? Right. And it's like, so I always imagine just being in the room, someone like maybe they rolled a scooter and I don't even know what they did. Right. Um, but it's just like, okay, the guy's like, yeah, I'm going to put a scooter on like every, I assume it would be his pitch or something like this. There's going to be a scooter on every block in the entire world. And it's, they're going to, so there's going to be like, I don't know, however that 50 million scooters out and people are going to go over, they're going to, you know, click on it and, uh, you know, they're going to rent it for like $1. Right. Or, and then, you know, and we're going to make whatever 10, 10% of that. And, you know, and so like now it's like, you see them everywhere. It's like, well, I mean, something's happening. Right. Obviously, but I, I don't know, you know, I, 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 myself, even with all the advantages of it, like, I'm not so sure. Like I would have been like, yeah, I think there's, cause like, even when I see them now, I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't think these scooters are ugly. Like I'm sort of like, why are they everywhere? Like kind of, uh, um, and I haven't ridden them much, so I don't, I'm not like really the target market. But then I, I was at the football game or you here at UT and it's like, man, you just see them everywhere. It's like a traffic jam of scooters. And so like, um, and even now, I, you know, as if someone said, Hey, you can invest now, it's like, I still think of myself like I, don't, I have no idea what's going to happen, and I see a lot of product market fit. But I also think it is very possible for everyone to get up one day, like more like a fashion thing, and be like, "It's just stupid to ride these things," and it's uh, and it could go away just as quick, right? You know, we have this graveyard of scooters. So uh, I don't know. What's your take? Like, what, how do you think of those kind of situations? Would you have written the check to? Uh, I, I'd like to think um, I would have written Bird the check and, and Lime yeah. and all those guys. Yeah, Bird is the what the fastest coming to a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah it's uh, incredible, right? I, you know, I like to think I would have written the check. I can, I can ever already hear the pitch. You know that we have all these walkers out there, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're not they're not be able to. And the seas are super dense already. So if you can pretty much get this micro transportation, then you can make transportation transportation even more efficient on the sidewalks. And I, I can I can see that pitch. Uh, you know, I like to think I would have invested in that, uh, and that valuation wouldn't have mattered. But uh, I think. I, I hope I would have, but I don't know. I'm <laughs> it's not, hard. That, right? didn't, that, didn't, that didn't ever cross my table. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I think I, I think those those are definitely like the next major wave, and you, you start seeing people all the different scooter companies kind of jumping, you know, following suit. That's when you you know it's going to be like uh, something's happening here, yeah, right, for sure. This is definitely this is definitely a hot space, and that's it's one that you look for the rising tide type scenario because this this is a, a rising tide where the, that these this micro transportation is taking off, and uh, and maybe it not might not be the exact scooter, but there's clearly some type of market here that people are using it. Uh, and that there, if it might not be a scooter, it might be something else, but there is something here and you, you kind of look for, okay, that's that there is a, a major problem being solved here. What is the best solution? And, and hopefully maybe that might be the, the, what you call the hoverboards or, you know, yeah. and, uh, it might be, maybe segways might come back, who knows? And, uh, but there is something here to kind of, you know, to kind of, uh, to be taking a, a close eye on. Yeah, no, not a doubt. So, all right. So we're pretty much out of time, but you've given us a lot of advice here, Jake, which I appreciate. So if someone wants to find you on the internet, they want to contact you probably because they're going to pitch you a unicorn idea <laughs> or, uh, or maybe, I don't know, maybe they just want to like, you know, 
maybe they want to invest with you. They want to get to know you. Where can they find you online? Where are you on the internet, as they say? I mean, you can find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. It's probably the two best places. Okay. And what's your Twitter handle? It's my last name, M-O-I-L-A-N-E-N. All right, good. So, all right. Well, any other final advice for all these aspiring entrepreneurs out there <laughs> or people just like, uh, or, or we should also say like, you know, you do have portfolio companies and they're looking to hire sometimes. So probably if like a DevOps person or engineering person, keep an eye on what Jake's investing in. That's probably gives you an idea of maybe a place you want to work. I mean, nothing, nothing groundbreaking besides, you know, just get out and actually just have a bunch of failures and keep going. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. All right. Well, I uh, appreciate everyone listening. If this is your first time listening to software defined interviews, you can go to www.softwaredefinedinterviews.com and you can subscribe and hear a whole bunch of episodes. Uh, even some episodes of, uh, we did an interview with Dustin, a friend, uh, Dustin yeah. Kirkland, like you, you know him from some IBM days. Yeah. So you can compare notes on what Jake said about Linux and what Dustin said about Linux. And, uh, there's a bunch of good episodes. And then of course, uh, if you, uh, want to hear like a weekly roundup of all the, the news related to enterprise technology, cloud computing, anything else, make sure to check out our other podcast at softwaredefinedtalk.com and you can subscribe there. And of course, if you want a sticker, a laptop sticker that I'm going to force Jake to take one here in just a second, you can just email me at stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. Send me your postal address. I'll send you a sticker anywhere in the world. That's how great a deal it is. So with that, we will talk to you next time.